What's up, nine o'clock? How we doing this morning, Rocky Pig? It is good to be with you. I'm excited. Already the Holy Spirit's been moving from last night's service. You could just feel it during worship this morning. If you're joining us for the very first time, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak. We're really glad you're spending this time with us. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. and I'm going to lead us in our time of teaching. So if you would, take out those programs you got on your way in. Inside, there is a green and white message note sheet, which as always is a great tool not just to help you follow along with this time of teaching, but it's a great tool to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. Let's pray. You know, Jesus, these last two services, I've been backstage listening to the worship, listening to the declarations, listening to the commitments, to the, to the heartfelt community that we're experiencing, and I find myself in awe of who you call us to be. Jesus, because of your work, because of your death and resurrection, because of your power, because of your kingdom, you have called us to be your sons and daughters. Jesus, because of you, you have called us to be your reflections. You have called us to present the hope to a broken world that is the name of Jesus. And so, Father, as your church, we are committed to answering that call. As your church, we are committed to singing, to open up your word, to having your spirit speak to us so we can become more and more of what you see us as becoming. Jesus, today, as we learn more of what it means to make you our foundation, I pray that the Holy Spirit give us a humility to hear your word, to see your word, to reflect on our own lives, that if we feel a holy conviction, it's not to live in guilt and shame, but it's an opportunity to grow in maturity, Father. As I often say as the communicator, let me become much less this morning, Jesus. Let you, as our Christ and King, become much, much more Father, you are already speaking to us, and as your church, we are committed to listen. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for the last five weeks or so called The Gospel. Now, this series is based on a letter that we find in the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, and this letter was written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And this letter is addressed to Christ followers, people that he had led to Christ himself, as well as people that had become close friends of his in and around the ancient city called Philippi. And so the heart behind this series is that word or that phrase, the gospel. When we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, more so than in any other of his writings in the New Testament, he uses that word, gospel, over and over. And the heart behind the series is that the apostle wants us to understand that the message of the gospel, this epic message is bigger, is brighter, is bolder, is deeper, is wider than we often understand. But not only that, the heart of Paul's letter is that not only is this a message for us to know, but the gospel is a life for us to live. In fact, Michael has been putting it this way each week, that the gospel is more than a message to be 
believed, it is a life to be lived. And so as we continue our journey in this, as we look back, we've been looking at first the intro that Paul gives to this letter, and then the last several weeks we've been looking at Paul's opening prayer. Now, if you've missed one of those messages or just want a refresher, they're always available on YouTube. Just search the Church of Rocky Peak, also available through the free Rocky Peak app. Now, today we're going to get to something that the Philippians were eager to hear. They knew that Paul was in prison and they were really concerned about his personal circumstances. They really wanted to know, Paul, how are you doing? That's why they sent their messenger to go the 850 miles or so to Rome to find out, are you okay, Paul? How are you doing? And as we read, the apostle is going to answer that question. He's going to share about his personal circumstances, but he's going to do it in a way that the Philippians are going to find is completely unexpected. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Paul's Chains. If you've got your Bible or your app, turn them on, open them up. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and starting at verse 12. The apostle writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now let's pause right there and unpack this. This is extraordinary and as I mentioned, unexpected because as Paul is expressing his outlook, he sounds positive, doesn't he? He sounds joyful, doesn't he? And to understand why this was so unexpected, we need to remind ourselves of the context of what Paul is doing. Paul being in prison means that he's in a season of suffering. So first of all, let's understand Roman imprisonment. This was not the four seasons of a prison. This was not a white-collar minimum security prison. This was a high-level Roman prison. In fact, in week one of our series, Michael dug deeper into that. And one of the key points is that they didn't feed you. They didn't feel that you were worthy of being fed. So how you ate was if friends or family provided finances or supplies for you to eat. Secondly, when Paul talks about his chains, he is not talking about a metaphor. He is literally in chains. In fact, many scholars believe what was common in Roman prisons is that he was likely chained to guards at all times that would rotate every four hours, but he was high level target, so to speak. Third, as we believe Paul is in Rome as he's writing this, and so he talks about the royal guard. If you think back to high school when you learned about Roman history, this Roman elite guard would be the Praetorian guard. They were Caesar's elite guard, the best of the best. In fact, 
They were also accomplished assassins. We see historically that the Praetorian Guard had deposed and installed Caesars. This was hardened criminals, and these were likely not only the people Paul was being watched by, but also some that he was chained to. And let's not get into the fact that this isn't the first time things have gone badly for Paul. If you look at the book of Acts, there is a lot of suffering and hardship that he faces. But if we just look at the first time he dealt with the Philippians, there was a riot and he was beat nearly to death. And then finally, what is Paul's mission? To preach the word of God. And now he is in chains when he for sure would rather be out talking about Jesus. So do we understand this is a circumstance of suffering? This is a deep trial that he's facing. So hear the apostle's heart. Paul is not downplaying his circumstances. Paul is not putting on a fake religious smile going, well, I'm a Christ follower. I'm supposed to find good in every situation. Paul is expressing a genuine joy. And so the million-dollar question is, how? How is he expressing such a joy despite the fact that he is in such challenging circumstances? And he's going to go on to unpack that for us, but what I want to do is I want to go back and now that we have that foundation, reread these first couple verses. Now, if you've got your pen handy, if you've got your highlight function in your app handy, get ready because we've got a long passage and we are going to mark this up this morning. So verse 12, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, would you underline that first? Brothers and sisters. First of all, there is a source of joy for Paul. The fact that as Christ followers, we are all now part of this new community, this new family. And understand something, what is beautiful about this family is that we are all beautifully diverse. God has given us different stories, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different abilities in the family of Christ, but before all else, as Paul reminds us, a foremost of all of our identities is we are children of God. So now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, the gospel, the message and the truth is that the the, the Messiah, Jesus, has come to restore, to heal, and to transform all that is broken, both in our world at large, but in our individual lives. And so, again, what is unexpected is that Paul is saying, my imprisonment is advancing the truth of Jesus, because common sense would say that him being in chains, his chains would have stopped the message of Jesus. But here he is going, no, 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 my chains have advanced it. And he's going to go on to talk about two areas that it's an advancing, his immediate circumstances and the external circumstances of the church. As we keep reading, as a result, 
It has become clear throughout the palace guard and everywhere else that I am in chains for Christ. Would you underline that? That I am in chains for Christ. And so what he's talking about is this. Soldiers, high up Roman officials, if they were to see chains on a prisoner, those chains symbolize the power of Caesar or the power of Rome. What Paul is saying is that his chains are symbolizing the power of of Jesus is that whether they understand the depth of that or not, that all of the people that are coming in contact with him understand that he's not simply a social or religious prisoner, but that he is a prisoner because of the name of Christ. He is standing firm on that. So that's his immediate circumstance. And then he goes on to talk about the external circumstances. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, again, the family of Christ, have become confident, would you underline that word, put a box around it, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So once again, we would say through common sense, this is an unexpected outcome because the stereotype is Paul is the best leader the church has ever had. And now Paul is in prison. If it can happen to a guy like Paul, then I'm going to keep my mouth shut. In fact, they're also be living in an increasingly hostile culture. If you were a Christ follower in Roman culture, it was already difficult to proclaim Jesus is Lord in a culture where the common phrase is Caesar is Lord. Let alone at this point in history, the Caesar is Nero. Public perception, blame is being placed on Christians. The foundation is being set for these harsh persecutions which are going to come. And so again, if you were the church, you should be intimidated by the fact that Paul is imprisoned. But the result is the opposite because you see that Paul finds joy in the person of Jesus despite his circumstances. In fact, Paul is saying that Jesus isn't working despite his circumstances. Jesus is working because of his circumstances. They are seeing that relationship and it is empowering them to know Jesus and make him known more in their lives. Now, what we're seeing again is that Paul maintains a bigger picture than what is right in front of him. And later on, we're going to get to the source of this, but what we're going to see is he has applied this bigger picture to these present circumstances. And now he's gonna apply that bigger picture to some infighting and disunity that's happening within the church at Philippi itself. And so as we continue to read verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Would you underline that? That some, so he's talking about some, he's talking about fellow believers are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Would you underline that word goodwill? Verse 16, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me. Would you underline that? They can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And so 
again, Paul is highlighting a division that is going on here. And he's talking about the fact that some of these people that have stepped up to fill the gap that has been left with him being imprisoned, some are preaching Jesus out of that relationship, out of that joy that all I want to do is know Jesus and all I want to do is make Jesus known. But then he's saying some have motives that are painful, Some have motives specifically that they are preaching Jesus out of some way to try to attack or to try to stick it, for lack of a better term, to the Apostle Paul specifically. Now let's unpack this because what's, this is fascinating, but also this is a little bit confusing because we don't have all the context. So first of all, let's examine what we do know. What we do know is that these people who are preaching out of envy and rivalry are not preaching a false gospel. They are not adding or taking away to the gospel of Jesus. And we know that because we see throughout Paul's other letters, specifically, if you look at the letter to the Galatians, that when a false gospel is preached, Paul does not mince words. He is very stern. He very much uses the words that Jesus did, that those are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so these people are preaching Christ and they fall under the brothers and sisters category. But the other thing that we know is that they are in sin. Envy and rivalry are not small things. They are being sinful in their heart. They are being sinful in their motives. And what we don't know is specifically what or why they were attacking the Apostle Paul. See, scholars are speculating, some believe that maybe they were jealous of Paul's position or his leadership in the church. Some believe that maybe they highly disagreed with his methodology, with the way that he did things. But regardless, they see his imprisonment as an opportunity to, quote, prove him wrong or prove themselves better. And so regardless of what we don't know, we need to understand that this is personally hurtful to Paul. He is already in a tough situation. He is already suffering, and this is salt in the wound. This is kicking him while he's down. And so I want to ask you a rhetorically question. If that was you, if you were the Apostle Paul, how would you feel emotionally right now? Do you think you'd be angry? I definitely would be angry. In fact, I feel like I would be furious knowing myself. And so with that, again, rhetorically, what kind of response would you write to these people? What kind of email would you type out? What kind of voicemail would you leave? What kind of social media posts would you put up? Because again, you are being legitimately wronged, right? And so common sense would say anger, destroy them. And let's look at Paul's response. Verse 18, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? Would you underline that? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Would you put a box around the word rejoice? That has been his attitude throughout this entire time. 
And so again, what we're seeing is that Paul's devotion to a bigger picture, Paul's devotion to the presence of Jesus is informing how he sees and filters his present circumstances. Now, understand, the apostle is not ignoring what is going on, nor is he giving them, quote, a free pass. But he realizes two important things. One, Jesus is bigger than their squabble. Jesus is bigger than their beef, so to speak. But the second thing that he knows is that the message and the purpose of the gospel is to restore broken hearts, is to bring light into the darkness of sin. So Paul is also showing a hope that these people that are doing things out of envy and rivalry, that God will correct them through the power and message of his gospel. He is placing it on God's hands, and rather than being angry and bitter, he is choosing to instead look at the big picture and rejoice. Powerful, isn't it? And so what we're going to see is that Paul is going to rejoice in his present circumstances, and now he's going to take that same attitude and rejoice in his future circumstances. So let's keep reading in verse at the end of verse 18, and because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, see that's a beautiful part about being the family of God, is that our prayers matter, is that in our prayers we partner with the mission of Jesus. What I love about this highlight is that it echoes a theme throughout everything Paul has been writing so far, is that the mission, the mission of Jesus, the sharing of the gospel, is not a mission that is limited to one or a few elite specific leaders, but this is a mission and the purpose of all Christ followers. If you're in this room and you have given your life to Jesus, this is our mission. And through their prayers, they are are partnering in this mission. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision, would you underline that, in God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the presence of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, underline that phrase, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so as Paul is looking towards the future, as he's contemplating what is to come, he's, he's acknowledging the very real possibility that his trial may end in death. He may be executed. And so again, he's grounding himself in the fact that his sole passion is to know Jesus, to experience the presence of Jesus. And this echoes back to what Michael was teaching on last week, that the goal of the gospel is the glory of God. And so he's saying, whether I am released and I'm physically delivered, whether I'm, whether I'm executed and I'm spiritually delivered, I hope that I do it all for the glory of God. And then he goes on to say one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Would you underline that for me? To live 
is Christ and to die is gain. Again, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so right here, we ask that question, how does Paul have a bigger perspective? How is Paul seeing a bigger picture despite his suffering, despite his pain? And he is, he is sharing that with us right now, that his whole relationship with God has been built on one firm foundation, and that is knowing and living in the presence of Jesus. When Paul says that for me to to live is Christ. That means that to live for Jesus is not momentary. He is not saying that, saying that I live for Jesus only for two hours a week on a weekend, maybe four hours if I go to life group, that I live for Jesus when I go to church, go to life group, and when I get my daily Bible verse texted to me, that I live for Jesus in the morning when I do my little devotional. Now, those are all good things, but the problem and the temptation is that we can put Jesus in segments. This is my God time. This is my real lifetime. What Paul is modeling is that as children of God, there are no segments that when we give our lives to Jesus through a beautiful act of repentance, when we repent of our sins, when he forgives us and he transforms us, as I've often said, he doesn't make us slightly better people. He makes us a whole new creation. And that whole new creation now lives a brand new life, one that is inseparably entwined with the living life of Jesus. That means in every area, we now depend, we now honor, we now receive power and purpose and meaning from Jesus. That to say Jesus is my life means that he is the foundation that flows into every other aspect of my life. Nothing is off limits. And so we see this in Paul's experience so far, that Paul's purpose and his mission in life flows out of that foundation, that Paul's view of his suffering and pain, the very real hope that he has flows out of that foundation, that his hope, which is not a, man, I really hope something happens, but a confident hope is formed in who Jesus is. It flows out of this. And what is absolutely beautiful about this is that Paul is not modeling this to be a unique Christ follower that never gets repeated. Paul is modeling this emergency as I call it. He is immersed. To live is Christ, is to be immersed in the presence of Jesus as the expectation for all Christ followers. Sons and daughters, this is your life. This is what Jesus has died to give you, an opportunity to live in every day and in every moment immersed in the presence of Jesus. And as he goes on to then say, to die is gain. This is not a fatalist view. This is also not the apostle looking to escape from his pain and his suffering. Again, because his view of Jesus has transformed how he views everything, his view of Jesus has transformed how he views death itself. That his sole passion in this life 
has been to be immersed, to be in the presence of the invisible God. And he sees death as the overflow of that, that I will be in the immediate physical presence of the Jesus I have been walking with this entire time. And as Paul is contemplating the real possibility, he sees it in a brand new way. And then he continues in verse 22, for if I am to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Would you underline that? That will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Paul is contemplating the fact that he may not have a choice in this matter. He may not have a choice on whether he lives or dies. But again, we see his view of death is not one of escape because he says, if I get to go on living, this is wonderful that I get to continue to serve Jesus and his kingdom in this life. If I don't get to go on living, then this is wonderful. I get to be in the presence of God. He is torn by the benefit of both. Verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Would you underline this? Again, that is just the passion of his life, to be in the presence, which is better by far. Verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so often this is called Paul's soliloquy. And as he's writing out his thoughts, you can kind of see the Holy Spirit working and giving him insight. And so when he talks about what is necessary, this isn't in an obligatory sense. He's not going, man, I would really love to go and physically be with Jesus, but I guess I'm going to stay for you yahoos or something like that. (laughs) Paul is saying, no, if I do get to say, this is wonderful because I get to continue to serve and be in the presence of Jesus in this life. He goes on, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. It sounds like the Holy Spirit is giving him insight. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Would you underline, and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting, underline that word, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And so as it seems that the Holy Spirit is giving him insight that he is going to be physically delivered, he starts, he starts expressing that joy that he's gonna get to be or get to impact the Philippians again. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that I'm joyful and now we're gonna go back to work. We have a quota to reach. We have a building to build. We have a worship band to train. He doesn't say this. What is his passion? His passion is I want to encourage your joy in Jesus. Again, his passion was to know Jesus and to make him known. He knows that if we are going to be on mission, then that requires us to be a people with the same passion. That number one, above all else, we want to know Jesus and through that we want to make him known. And that is the source of our confidence. And I like how he talks about boasting in Christ Jesus that it doesn't have the negative sinful connotations we often understand. It doesn't mean a self-righteousness or an ego or anything like that. But to boast in Jesus is to celebrate and rest in the confidence of who he is, of who he has made you to be and the power that goes before you. To boast in Jesus is another way of saying to worship in 
Jesus. Heck of a passage, isn't it? That's our passage for this morning. And so, as I often do, at the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to unpack this model that he gave us a little bit further. Specifically, Paul is modeling a life that is immersed in the presence of Jesus. And so I want to unpack a little bit more of what that truly means and look at some of the ramifications in our practical life. So if you're following following along in your note sheet, you got a section titled Immersion Defined. And your fill-in is this. Our lives flow out of the gospel. Our lives flow out of the gospel. This is the heartbeat of what drove everything that the Apostle Paul said and did. If you think about it in the, in, the pic, in the mental picture of a swimming pool, the Apostle Paul is saying that when it comes to Jesus, it's not good enough to just put your toe in the water. It's not good enough to put your foot in the water. It's not good enough to get into your knees or halfway. When it comes to Jesus, we need to be fully immersed. It is time, brother and sister, to cannonball into that water because as a new creation, as Jesus has created us and made us new, immersion in his presence is the foundation from which we now build and live our lives. As I mentioned earlier, every aspect of our lives now flows, is affected, and is transformed by the foundation that above all else, we are children of God. That above all else, we live in the presence of the risen kingdom. That above all else, we now reflect the very real and active kingdom of God to the world around us. Now, as Paul models this, what we need to do often when we're reading scripture is we need to take a moment of pause and honest reflection. We need to be honest and ask ourselves the question, what is the state of your current foundation in life? What are you currently building your life on? Would you say that your life is built on the foundation of the presence of Jesus? Or would you say that your life is built on something else? Now, I gotta pause, and this includes myself, especially if you've been around church for any length of time. I'm willing to bet you've encountered a message or a situation where you've heard this Christian language of Jesus is supposed to be our foundation, or Jesus is supposed to be our highest priority. Our lives come out of Jesus, and I'm willing to bet that you, as I have, fully agree with that statement. We would say, yes, that is true, that makes sense as Christ followers, As Michael has said in the past, if that was a statement on Facebook, we would probably like it, right? We would probably even share it. Yes, Jesus is the foundation, but what I have found in my own life and in the life of others, there is often a big divide between agreeing with that statement and actually living it out. 
And that's why when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to what Paul is saying, we need to pause and we need to reflect because authenticity is the first step to transformation. And as I need to pray often, I need the Holy Spirit to give me a holy humility to look at my life honestly because the truth is I may say that Jesus is the foundation, but the reality is I may have allowed other things, other labels, other situations, that defines us as a culture to be the foundation from which I build in. And often, that doesn't happen intentionally. Often, we're not sitting here like melodrama villains twirling an evil mustache going, yes, I hope to build my foundation on something other than Jesus. What happens is life. And what I mean by that is what happens is what I call the whirlwind. Life doesn't slow down, does it? What happens is the craziness. And when that happens, we have the fight or flight response, right? And we go into survival mode and all of a sudden everything is crazy and we're trying to survive. And we start saying things like, okay, all I gotta do is make it to the end of the day. All I gotta do is make it to the end of the week. All I gotta do is make it to the end of the month. All I gotta do is make it to the end of the year. All I gotta do is make it to the end of the decade. All I gotta do is make it to the end of my life and then I'll die. And what happens is we start running so hard and so fast that we stop looking at what we're running towards. And so we inadvertently begin to allow our foundation to be defined by other things, even good things. So all of a sudden, our foundation, which is our identity, starts to become our relationship status. All of a sudden, whether I am in a relationship or I am married, that defines me or that does not. All of a sudden, we find out I am only somebody's spouse or that's the only way I see myself or I am not married. And a quick sidebar here, I just want to say this because my heart always breaks in these situations, that sometimes the church of Jesus has made marriage an idol. If you are here and you are unmarried for whatever reason, you are no less in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not love you any less than he loves your married brothers and sisters. But then all of a sudden, something else, like my relationship status as a parent. My kids are wonderful, but they are the dominant God of my life. Their schedules, their happiness, everything I need to do about them, that becomes the foundation from which my life is built on. Or maybe something like my college or my work and my career. I want to provide. I want to save for the future. I want to make sure that I can actually pay my bills. And those are all good things. But what happens is we start running and running and running and that becomes our foundation. And we start basing our life on it. All of a sudden, descriptive things, beautiful things that God has given us, whether it's our God-given gender, whether it's our God-given race, that in this room there are people of European descent, African-American descent, Hispanic, Latino descent, Asian-American descent. Those are wonderful, beautiful gifts that God has given us, but they are not strong enough to be our foundation. Sometimes our patriotism becomes our foundation, and we're tempted to put the flag before the cross of Jesus, and it is a gift to be in the United States. It is a gift to be politically active, but it is not 
not our foundation. Our personality can become our foundation. Whether you're loud and obnoxious like I am, and I promise when I'm not on stage, I'm an introvert, or you're very quiet and like to sit in the corner, or you're something in between, all of a sudden is that's who you are. You're the funny person. You're the quiet person. You're not anything else than that. It could be your experiences. It could be your giftings. It could even be your hurt and your pain that you don't realize that you are defining yourself. Your foundation is what's been done to you or what you've done to other people. Now, some of those, many of those are wonderful things, are they not? But none of those are strong enough to be the foundation of our lives. Foundation matters because whether it's in a big area like our eternity, whether it's in something small and trivial, the strength of the foundation will always matter. Now let me illustrate it in this way. So something that I absolutely adore in this world is dessert. I'm a very big dessert. Any other, any other sweet tooth people like going in? I remember growing up, my mom would always be like, you're gonna spoil your dinner, to which smart-alecky me would go, mom, this is my dinner as we go in. I love a good dessert, and one of my favorite desserts is just a well-baked chocolate chip cookie. Jim, can you throw that up on the screens? <laughs> Beautiful, right? Here's what's absolutely amazing to me when it comes to my love of chocolate chip cookies is I hate chocolate. I think chocolate is disgusting. I see respect falling in some of your eyes. But yet, for whatever reason, I absolutely adore a well-baked chocolate chip cookie. Now, whatever your favorite cookie, let's think about the foundation of a cookie matters, doesn't it? What is the foundation of a cookie? To taste good by all means necessary. That is the foundation of a cookie, to taste good, to make it feel like there's a party in your tummy. Usually a chocolate chip cookie accomplishes that by four sticks of butter, an entire bag of sugar, and an entire a Costco-sized thing of chocolate chips, and we're okay with that. Jim, can you go to the next picture? Hey, can somebody tell me, what is this? <laughs> like somebody just shouted out. Okay, so I need to correct some of you. Some of you said the word cookie. This is not a cookie. This is an oatmeal raisin monstrosity. Because it may try to lie to you and say it's a cookie, but why can I confidently say it's not a cookie? Because it is missing the foundation. This does not taste good. And I want to let you know, as a pastor and spiritual elder in your life, please stop putting raisins in your food. Whether it's bread pudding, cinnamon rolls, potato salad, stop giving them to your kids. They are rotted grapes. We don't need that in our lives. Jim, you can pull that down. So in the small and in the lighthearted, in the seemingly mundane, foundation matters, right? But especially when it comes to our lives in this world and in the next, when it comes to eternity, foundation matters. 
And so that list of things that often become our defining factors and that often become our foundation, when we find ourselves immersed in the presence of Jesus, when Jesus is our foundation, what happens is he now gives us new eyes so that we now then approach those other aspects of our lives. We approach our relationships. We approach our workplace. We approach our schedules. We approach our sin. We approach our hurt. We reproach our finances, whatever it may be. We now approach them asking the question, as a child of God, first and foremost, how do I now think and act towards this? How do I now live in these areas by maintaining myself as a child of God first and foremost? Because again, that is now the foundation given in the risen presence of Jesus. And we see this in your note sheet. Paul talks about this in some of his other letters. First from the letter of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Would you underline that? But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Below that, from the book of Colossians, since then, you have been raised with Christ. That means forgiven of our sins, restored and transformed into a new creation. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. This next part I adore. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Would you underline that? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also, will appear with him in glory. The heart of God for each and every one of his children is to live every day immersed in his presence. And so as we think about that practically there in your note sheet, I wanted to give you a key word to help frame this, and that's the word worship. A life that is built on the immersion in the presence is a life that is worshiping in all areas. Now often when we think of worship, we think of this wonderful time in which we gather and we sing. And think about what we're doing that, that through that time of singing. We are declaring the character of Jesus. We are declaring that he is alive that he is risen, that he is king, that he is present. We are declaring that he transforms each and every one of us and transforms our world at large. We are declaring that we will commit to experience and to know you and to make you known. That is exactly what we do through our time of singing because that is exactly the heart of worship. And the beautiful truth of worship is that worship is our entire lives, not just the songs. And so we have the opportunity through immersion to live a life that declares Jesus is king, that declares he is present, that declares that the purpose of my life is to know him and to make him known. The immersed life is the life of worship. And we have been created to worship because God has created us to become and reflect whatever it is we worship. And when we worship a foundation, that is less than, that is weak, that is broken, that is what we reflect. But when we worship the risen King, Jesus the Christ, who has set us free, that is who we reflect. 
And so immersion is a life of worship. And so then the question becomes practically, well, how do we jump into the pool? And there are many beautiful ways, but the most important one is going to be in your one-on-one relationship with God. See, me as one of your pastors, I can only take you so far. Your life group can only take you so far. Your family can only take you so far. Your Christ-following friends can only take you so far. But to experience this life is going to be in your one-on-one life, in, in your one-on-one pursuit and habits. Now, I don't have the time to really dig into what that would look like, but I want to give you some good resources. See, this is so vital to us as the heart of our church. The last year, we dedicated pretty much the entire year to learning how do we develop what we call a one-on-one rhythm of relationship. We did, from the weekend and in our life group, two key series, one called Rooted and one called Pursuing God. If you're new to Rocky Peak and miss those, or if you're like me and you were there, but you also want a refresher course, Those series live on our YouTube, live on our app. I would highly encourage you to go to those series to use them as a resource to learn how to dive in. Now, as we make Christ our foundation, as we immerse ourselves in him, he transforms everything about us. But there are two key areas that we see modeled through Paul in the section of scripture that he transforms in us that I want to highlight. So the first one is this. Immersion transforms our purpose? That's a key question, not just in our culture, but it's a key question of human beings, isn't it? What is my purpose? What am I here to do? What is the most important thing I should be doing in our time, with my time? In fact, some of you have experienced how soul-crushing it can be to feel like you no longer have a purpose or to feel like your purpose has been taken away. And so what Paul is remodeling for us through this is that when we give our lives to Jesus, all Christ followers are now given a new, beautiful, holy purpose, and that is now to know Jesus and to make him known. The moment you give your life to Jesus and he transforms you into a new creation, that is now your purpose for all of eternity, to know Jesus and to make him known. And especially in the church, we need to widen our perspective because too often we have shrunk the purpose of our lives down into heaven. Now, heaven is an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. But often we talk about heaven as if that's the only purpose of our lives, that the only goal in reaching people for Jesus is for them to go to heaven one day. We celebrate as we should and go, you gave your life to Jesus. You get to go to heaven. Awesome. Now you just wait (laughs) and wait and wait and then you die and then your purpose starts. We have made heaven as the end of the game. But to continue that analogy, heaven is not the end of our game. Heaven is the opening kickoff of a brand new one. Our purpose to know Jesus and to make him known begins now in this life. It begins now as we are in the kingdom. Look there on your note sheet. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. The goal is not for people to go to heaven when they die. That is never mentioned in Acts. That's the account of the early movement of Jesus. The whole book of Acts assumes, first, that God's kingdom has already been well and truly launched through the death and resurrection 
resurrection of Jesus. The purpose of forgiving sin there as elsewhere is to enable people to become fully functioning, fully image-bearing. Would you underline that? Fully image-bearing human beings within God's world already now completely in the age to come. And so our holy purpose is bigger than our circumstances, isn't it? It is that we now get to know the wonder of Jesus and we get to make him known. Remember, as I was talking about the apostle models, that this is our mission. And here's a beautiful, encouraging thing. Often there are many of us that you hear this mission of sharing Jesus and we tense up, don't we? We think about the awkward conversations. We think about what if I don't know the answers or how do I do this without offending and alienating someone? And I understand those fears, but here's the truth of our purpose. If the first step of our purpose is making Jesus known, is immersing ourselves in his presence, is having his overflow affect every aspect of our lives, what you don't realize is you are already having those conversations. You just may not be doing it through words but people see what your foundation is people see how you choose to handle hard trials and suffering people see what your priorities are and so our purpose first and foremost is to know Jesus and through that we will make him known and then with that there in your note sheet the second area immersion transforms our courage. I got to be honest with you, and I think some of you might relate to this. When I think of the craziness that is my life, when I think of the whirlwind and that never-ending race, the thought of reorienting my life, the thought of living differently is intimidating. It scares me. Because like many of you, I ask some key questions. Do I even have the time to do this? How would I stop the train, so to speak? Do I have the know-how or the ability to do this? Do I have the patience to do this? Because this isn't gonna change overnight. Do I have the healing from these hurts to be able to do this? And so again, as we look at the model of Paul when he was in suffering, when he needed courage, what we see in Paul's example is that the key to us having courage is not to be fearless. The key to our courage is to trust and focus on the Jesus that is fearless for us. I like how it's there in your note sheet. We must hear Jesus and we must see Jesus. We must keep the focus of our hearts on him. That's because hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus and focusing on Jesus builds up our faith and is the antidote to fear. Would you underline that? And is the antidote to fear. The opposite of fear is not being bold and courageous. The opposite of fear is faith. Let me illustrate this with a situation from my own life. Several years ago, I was in the midst of a storm. And like many of you, I had experienced storms before in my life, and storms can always be devastating, but this was a storm like no other. This was a situation in my life in which all my circumstances had fallen apart despite all of my best efforts to hold them all together. In fact, if I were to use a metaphor, I would say that I felt emotionally as if I got hit by a bus and dragged for multiple miles underneath. 
And many of you can relate to that, right? And in that time, in the mess of the wreckage, I remember going to the Lord. I remember pleading to the Lord, asking good things, which we should ask. Father, change my circumstances. Father, deliver me from this. Father, provide in the situation. And in those moments, I didn't receive an answer back. And finally, at one time, I was in prayer and I was feeling that same frustration and I just stopped and went, okay, Father, I've been asking this whole time. Speak and just tell me what you want me to hear. And I grew silent and I felt the Holy Spirit in the stillness of my soul say simply this, I have not abandoned you. I have not abandoned you. And in that, I felt something I hadn't felt in months. Courage. Hope. The presence of Jesus with me. My circumstances did not change. It would still be a while before rebuilding happened, but I now faced it with a bigger perspective and courage because of that truth. I have not abandoned you. And so as I invite the worship team to come on out, I'd like to invite you to just reflect is there an area in your life in which the Lord is asking to strengthen your foundation? Is there an area of holy conviction, not because he wants to shame and guilt you, but because he wants you to be more of who he's created you to be? Is there an area or in the entirety of your life in which you need to be reaffirmed and recharged that you have a beautiful, holy purpose, that you matter? Is there an area or a situation in your life, whether dealing with something internally, someone or something externally, in which you need to be reminded of the courage that God brings? Whatever it is, as we go into this time of worship, I want to invite you, the song we're about to sing is wonderful and is absolutely perfect for what the apostle has told us. And so let this be a time of encouragement. Let this be a time of celebration and declaration. Let's pray. Father, we want to jump in. Father, we have want to be immersed in your presence because your presence is the foundation from which our entire lives flow. And so, Father, show us where we can strengthen that foundation. Show us maybe even for the first time how to build a foundation in the presence of Jesus. Father, we continue to affirm our purpose, continue to affirm that it's not about us being fearless, but it's about trusting in you who is truly fearless. Father, as we sing this wonderful song, let us grow in our awareness that you are with us and you will never depart us. You have not abandoned us and you are just getting started. We love you, Jesus, in your son's name. We all say amen. Let's stand and sing together, Rocky Peak. That was awesome. Thank you. You know, it's amazing when we gather as family to experience the presence of God, isn't it? But it's even more amazing that as children of God, Christ followers, the presence we experience here is the presence that goes with us. 
is the presence that is with us in all circumstances, is the presence that becomes our foundation that our lives flow out of, is the presence that reaffirms our identity and purpose. If you are a Christ follower here, just keep repeating that in your head. You are a child of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are his beloved. You are a child of God with ultimate worth, ultimate purpose, ultimate glory. And as we go, let that be the foundation from which you live your life. If you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, know that you have the fingerprints of God in you, whether you realize it or not. Know that our Jesus does not love you any less, but loves you as much as us because he died for you. He sets you free and this life, this homecoming, he calls you son and daughter and says, come home, I have everything ready. It's a rocky peak as we leave this place. Let us leave on a strong foundation. Let us be firm. Let us look at our lives and go, I am going to approach this. That will be transformed because I am a child of God. Amen? If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, whether you've got a storm or a try you're facing, whether you want to celebrate who God is and give him praise, whether you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, over alongside that wall to my right in either venue that you're in, you're going to find some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They would love to help you out with that. Next week, I really hope you can be here as Michael continues our series. He's going to go into what is the heart of the entire letter. As we've been preparing you for this, Paul is going to declare, live a life worthy of the gospel. And so we're going to unpack that and see what it means. I love you, Rocky Peak. We'll see you next week.